The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. It's nice to have, or maybe the air conditioning's on, doesn't feel like it, it feels like it's real air, so it's kind of nice. Summer maybe is actually ending. So it's interesting, these transitions. You know, I'm sure it felt to you like it did to me sometime in the middle of the heat and humidity, like it was never going to end. It won't be long before we'll be reminiscing about the heat and humidity. <laughs> so we've been talking about equanimity, you know, peace with change. Or somebody, I think it was uh, um, um, maybe Thich Nhat Hanh, this uh, Vietnamese Buddhist monk, said something like, equanimity brings peace to love. <clears throat> because you know how it is when we're loving something, liking something, the mind can get agitated by the liking, by the loving. But what is it to really love something without being agitated by it? Like to have something really good happening to us, for us in our life, but it not be an agitating force. Last week I talked about the safety and equanimity. And uh, I'm sure all of us know, we've all experienced all the time, how life changes. You know, sometimes things are good and sometimes things are difficult. And, you know, equanimity, a lot of what we think of when we hear the word equanimity is sort of being uh, impartial to the change. So things coming and going, good things coming, bad things coming. And the question is, is that actually safe? Because what triggers us, what kind of gets in the way of equanimity, it almost feels dangerous, doesn't it, to relax with change? You know, it's like when something good happens, it triggers the hoarding mechanism. I mean, even something really silly like, you know, our friend or we go to a restaurant or we cook for ourselves some big meal. And there's just this instinct, you know, I should eat a lot, <laughs> you know, because who knows when I'll be able to eat again. You know, this is a good thing and it's here and available. I should basically take as much as I can handle. You know, pack it away like a chipmunk, you know. So we have different places where we pack it. Especially the cheese. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or ice cream or whatever it is for each of us. <laughs> so let's, let's reflect on this, each of us in our own life right now. You know, given the particular changes that we are in the middle of, that we're aware of now, is it actually safe? Does it feel safe to just relax with the uncertainty in our lives? Maybe you're getting involved in a new relationship or maybe an older relationship is ending. And the question is, that's change, right? So is it safe to relax with that change or that uncertainty? You have a job. <clears throat> Somebody was mentioning to me, 
before the program tonight, you know, just about uncertainty in terms of their job, he and his wife's job. And uh, so the question is, is it actually safe, is it appropriate to relax with that uncertainty? Or maybe about our health. Some of you know Eric Stahl, who one of our longtime leaders, one of the original board members of the center, who's been working with his uh, serious pancreatic cancer for the last four months, not that long, and he's uh, gotten some results back that look good. I mean, it's, it doesn't seem to be getting worse, and it might actually be improving, which is uh, really good news. And just to be relaxed with that, like, you know, even as a friend, I want to kind of grasp that good news, you know, and kind of make it like more permanent than it is. You know, like, this is good news. He's out of the woods. It's all clear sailing ahead or something like that. You know, that's how we want, that's what we want to do with good news. But it's just what it is. It's just the results of a, of a test. And this is what the test says. And just let it be that. Just be really simple with it. So we tend to react both good and bad news because somehow it feels safer you know in a primitive way it feels safer to react than it does to just be relaxed and simple with the good news and the bad news so let's just you know take a little time tonight i want to talk about equanimity and freedom tonight but i want to start where we ended last week in terms of safety because a lot of times we think of freedom in a complicated way, like, I'll have this kind of life in which I'll be free. We almost have like an idealistic notion of ourselves as a free person, somebody not burdened by life. You know, we, we imagine what we'd look like being free and what would be going on in our life if we were free. But that's not really the freedom that the Buddha talks about. So when we, you know, when we learn, when we begin to explore relaxing with life as it comes and goes, like even like we did at the end of the sit, where we're seeing, we're hearing, we're aware of thoughts, we're aware of sensations, lots of change. It's like sitting meditation and awareness of sensation and thought and sound and sight. It's like daily life. It's just relatively simple because we're not, you know, with a lot of distractions. But there's a lot of change moving in the body. A lot of change in the mind, thoughts coming and going, emotions coming and going. Even visually, there's change. You Peripherally, you see people moving, you see the play of light in the room, you hear different sounds. And so in our sits, that's really what we're doing. We're practicing finding, realizing a stillness of peace, the capacity to fully release the heart in the midst of the changing sensations of the body, the changing thoughts in the mind, the mood in the mind, changing sights, changing sounds, changing world. And so that's the practice in daily life. It's the practice in our sitting. And the question is, you know, <clears throat> is it safe? Is it dangerous? Like when we're sitting in our meditation, you know, like we did tonight, is it safe to be exposed, intimate, aware of the breathing process and just let it happen, you know, as we say, let it rip. But not controlling it, not imposing or projecting expectations on how the breath should be, how the posture should be, but just letting 
letting the catastrophe of our sit unfold. Right? Let the mind be the beast that it is and the body be the beast that it is. And all the different reverberations, you know, the body aches and that's one expression of the beast. And the mind complains about the body aching, that's another expression of the beast. You know, and then we judge ourselves for complaining and being distracted, and then that's another manifestation of the beast. And then there's the parental beast that wants us to come back and be just with the breath. And, but the equanimity, the path is really about finding peace in the midst of all those beasts, all those forces of habit forces of our conditioning, finding peace in the midst of that. So do we find safety in allowing all the different manifestations of the beast, of habit energy, of nature, habit energy, just allowing it all to move? And this is just like in daily life, you know. There we are at our jobs, whatever that might be for each of us, or there in our lives. <clears throat> You know, it's exactly the same thing. Things are moving. Thoughts are moving, emotions are moving, sensations are moving, sounds are moving, sights are moving. It's exactly the same as sitting practice. And the question is, in the midst of all that movement, now remember I said our thoughts are moving too, so it's not like the personality and the guy who's doing the job isn't there doing the job. But can there be peace? And the peace of like full exposure. Because any kind of defense is in the way of peace. So peace means, in a sense, no defense, no uh, resisting full exposure to our life, to the present moment. That's what the peace is. And this really gets to the heart of the talk, or the theme for tonight's talk, which is discovering freedom in equanimity. And I mentioned this right at the beginning when we started this theme. You know, we often think of equanimity as like, uh, well, life's really difficult. You know, being a human being is difficult. And the best we can do is be equanimous with it. You know, just sort of, because resisting it just makes it worse. So let's just put up with our miserable human condition. But that's really you know, a very limited idea of equanimity and a spiritual life just to endure a very unfavorable, you know, human existence. That's not what it's about. Equanimity is really uh, in the direction of freedom. So once we start getting a sense of the relief, the safety that comes with non-reactivity, acceptance, then it's like we start exploring that safety, like if being relatively at ease with the changing conditions of the moment, if that, if there's some safety in that, well, how about being a little bit more deeply at ease? How about being profoundly at ease? So basically teasing out more and more subtle layers of resistance, of expectation, like we may think, I have no expectations, you know, and then, you know, I often joke, well, then the asteroid lands, you know, in Common Grounds Yard, and then we realize, oh, I, w 
I didn't think that was going to happen, you know. So having no expectations mean, means that we can't be surprised by anything. We don't expect our partners to be any particular way. We don't expect our politicians to be any particular way. We don't expect our mind to be any particular way. So when our mind starts acting in a really immature way, it doesn't surprise us. Or if our mind responds in a really beautiful, mature, wise way, it doesn't surprise us either. The mind doesn't grasp, doesn't react. And so that kind of, uh, you know, that movement toward peace, the peace of equanimity, it's that freedom. It's like such a profound freedom of not needing the world to be other than what it is. This is really the direction of the Buddha's teachings, to realize the great, profound freedom, release of the heart. Like in one of the Buddha's most famous talks, discourses, the heartwood, the talk about the heartwood, he talks about the heartwood, the real center heart of the practice, being the unconditional release of the heart, the sure heart's release. The heart that's so released, or the mind heart that's so released that there's nothing left to release. No holding, no pain, no tension, no separation, sense of separation left to release. No problem left to let go of. That's the heart sure release. And this is really the direction, this is the training that we're doing. We're in the direction of release, of true happiness. It isn't a resignation. It's not that we um, open to change and open to uncertainty and vulnerability, life and death, gain and loss. You know, last week we talked about the eight worldly winds of fame and disrepute and praise and blame and gain and loss and pain and pleasantness. We talked about that and, and how inevitably, as an ordinary human being, all that change roughs us up. It's painful. It's painful to be exposed to change. And so what does an ordinary human being like us do? What do we do? We try to control the change. You know, We try to you know, have a house that doesn't change. You know, instead of a 30-year roof, we want a metal roof that will last for, you know, 60 or 80 years. And, you know, and, you know, it's everything we want. You know, instead of, uh, you know, this kind of garden, we want a garden that we don't have to weed. And it's like it never ends. You know, we want to put that black mesh under the ground so we don't have to weed. And, there's no limit to how we want to control change. We want kitchen countertops that don't get stained and don't need to be maintained. And, you know, there's endless debates. Well, if you get soapstone, you've got to take care of it in this way. And granite has radon in it. And, you know, so, but it's all about like somehow the perfect safety we're going to find in the world, you know, either with the right partner or the right kitchen counter or the right car or this or that. I often mention, I, I wish I just would memorize it once and for all, but there's this great, couple great quotes from Helen Keller. Most of you know who she was, a wonderful leader in this country. I just, by example, having had a fever when she was a young girl and 
was blinded by it and um, was mute uh, for a while at least and uh, deaf and is there any other implication from her early disease anyway and just overcame a lot of that just through uh, good instruction and her own perseverance but she has this wonderful quote about you know life is and this is a not such a great paraphrase but life is either a a total exposure to insecurity or it's nothing you know either we realize that anything short of a full and open-hearted exposure to the truth of change the truth of insecurity and uncertainty anything less than that is a kind of death it's a like heart taking the strategy of freezing up or denial or control none of those strategies of course work all of those strategies are what we call suffering they are just tension that gives a semblance of security but actually creates more insecurity and more suffering more tension in our lives so this is um, from Joseph Goldstein's book and he and he has a uh, this book insight meditation in a chapter on practice and he's really talking about acceptance and uh, and how acceptance acceptance really is a kind of receptivity or softness but not to confuse softness it's like uh, the buddha talks about patience and constancy and this you know the practice of showing up and even though it is a a yielding like a opening to the present moment it's a real force of wisdom a power it's power because we're overcoming our strong conditioned habit to resist and to react and to want to control and to want to be in denial so it really is a a, a powerful assertion you know the the will the sort of force of the personality this sort of practice force is asserting itself i'm going to show up this heart is going to feel it's going to be present it's going to be awake and aware of how it is and what allows for this power is our growing realization of stillness or peace in the midst of change and this is what we cultivate in our sitting practice you know all of us everybody here when we sit feels some pain everybody here has some mental agitation or mental dullness when they sit is there anybody who doesn't experience mental or physical or both pain when you're sitting hands <laughs> jerry you don't <laughs> i saw your hand move <laughs> you got to be careful when you scratch so we all do so it's like the perfect opportunity that mental agitation mental pain physical pain is the perfect opportunity to see if in fact there is peace is stillness is something to trust in the midst of all that change of this happening and that happening is there something to take refuge in and is the path equanimity the path not trying to control or deny the present moment that in dropping in see this is where we realize why the present moment is so essential for the spiritual life because it's that full exposure to the present moment the 
insecurity. You know, we can't control everything that's moving in the present moment. We can't even control our thoughts in the present moment, let alone everything else, like what we hear, what we see, right? What we feel in the body. We can't control it. So that full exposure to the present moment is what reveals that uh, refuge in the heart, the stillness or the equanimity or the peace that isn't disturbed by these thoughts or those thoughts, these sounds or those sounds, these sights or those sights, these sensations or those sensations. What is it that's not disturbed by all of this? this uh, John Kabat-Zinn calls it the, the full catastrophe, full catastrophe healing, the name of his book, something like that. But he's just talking about awareness, waking up to the present moment as a kind of explosion or catastrophe. He's just highlighting how uncertain, how not in control it is. And this full exposure reveals the heart that can be with it. That's so how I'll just read some from Joseph's uh, chapter on acceptance in the section of the book, How to Practice. Softening the mind is not so hard to do. It is largely a matter of remembering to do it. It's okay. Just let me feel this. Then things settle down by themselves in a natural way. Struggle comes from not accepting what is present. Often in meditative language, we speak of letting go of things, letting go of thoughts, letting go of emotions, letting go of pain. Sometimes that is not exactly the right phrase because letting go suggests that you need to do something. A better phrase to work with is let it be, let it be. Everything comes and goes by itself. We do not have to do anything to make it come or to make it go or to let it go. We just have to let it be. Right? So that's that refuge in stillness and equanimity and peace. In order to let it all be, we need to grasp a difficult but essential lesson for meditation practice and indeed for all aspects of our life. Having pleasant feelings and avoiding unpleasant ones is not the purpose of our practice. The purpose of uh, mindfulness practice is freedom. When we purify our mind of afflictive emotions of greed, hatred, and delusion, we come to the end of suffering. So the important thing in meditation is not whether we experience pleasant or unpleasant feelings, but rather how we relate to those feelings. Are we taking them personal? and therefore feel compelled to react with grasping or aversion? Or are we resting in peace, in intimacy, allowing things to come and go, not being dependent on the, you know, the life, the experience that's coming and going? To do this, of course, we need to we need to uh, cultivate. It's actually a, it's sort of a twofold uh, cultivation. First, we have to have some amount of faith that it's appropriate to open, to be exposed to the present moment. And initially, you know, it's not a condition. Our condition, like I said, is to control or to deny. But even if it's just a little bit of confidence or faith because you heard a talk 
suggesting that this is a useful approach to life, to feel what we feel, to see what we see, to be awake, to be sensitive. So even if it's just based indirectly on what you heard somebody else say, but if it sounds compelling, sounds like it makes sense, worthy of exploration, then we need to act on that faith, that sort of faith based on what somebody else said. But then if we do that, then we actually have some direct experience. Was it actually safe? Was it destructive or harmful to open, to relax a little bit more, to trust you know, this capacity to be non-reactive? To basically restrain that habit energy to react, to deny, to distract, to try to control. Right? So there is some real work here in accepting and resting because it's not our habit. So, But we do it a little bit and then we assess. Was it safe? Was it skillful or unskillful? Did it make things worse or was it healing? And then, then we have more faith, more confidence that this might be the way. Then we act on that. So that there's two parts. One is to recognize whatever faith we do have or confidence we do have and act on it. That's the key. It's not just to know that there's some interest or some faith, but we got to act. We got to do something about it. Like with this moment, for example. You know, okay. Well, let's see if it's if it actually is safe. I think it might be, but let's see. You know, what is it like to really show up? Okay, I'm having this conversation with my partner, and she's pushing my buttons, or something like that. Okay, should I just react, or should I take a moment and just be aware, feel what I feel in my body, notice what's going on in my mind, the kind of thoughts that are going on in my mind. You know, feel the heat, feel the insecurity, feel the shame. Is this safe, or is it actually destructive to get close? So we're really testing it out. We don't want to just be stuck with having to take it on hearsay. We want to actually know directly in our experience. And then if it does, then we really want to trust our experience and keep acting on what we've learned. And this is the second part. It's the cultivation. Because then, once we have some momentum in our confidence or faith that opening up, total exposure, being sensitive is really the path, then the, the basic um, engine of this awakening process then is moment by moment, the mind getting quite skilled at knowing what's predominant and opening there. Because there's a lot of tricks along this path. Just because we have some confidence that opening is the way, the mind is always going to be looking for a shortcut. The ego is going to be looking for a shortcut. So it's going to be sort of playing games like, well, I'll open. I need to open. I realize opening is the way, but I'll open to this. You know? But we don't need to open to this. We have to open to what's actually predominant in the moment. That's the key. Any kind of negotiation, sort of unconscious negotiation, like I don't really want to feel the knee pain, so I'll open to sounds. I don't want to feel how I'm insecure, so I'm going to notice this. So we even use that with the breath. Like, I'm going to be with the breath because I don't want to feel this. I don't want to be aware that this is actually what's happening. And one of the real difficult places in meditation practice is 
often what's predominant isn't the gross thing. Often what's really predominant in a moment of our lived experience is something very subtle. But just because something's, so to speak, quiet or subtle doesn't mean it's not predominant. It doesn't mean it's not what's asking for attention. And things sometimes are predominant because they're pervasive, but we tend not to notice those pervasive things because they feel like, well, that's me, you know, and I'm paying attention to out there. So we tend to notice more specific things like pain in the knee, but we don't notice like the mood, like, I don't like life. You know, we have that sort of in a funk. We tend not to notice that because in a sense it's so personal that it doesn't stand out as something to pay attention to, something to welcome. Oh, this is how it is now. So once we have some faith, then we have to develop skill, a real talent, and a kind of a fearless talent to be willing to see, to know, to accept what is predominant. What's really asking for attention here? What is the mind not yet open to? Because, of course, that's the only thing we have to open to. If we're already completely open to something, that's not a practice. (laughs) That's already done. What we have to open to is what the mind isn't aware of completely, isn't completely relaxed with, isn't completely uh, welcoming, is in some kind of denial of, some sort of fear of, some sort of attachment to. Because all of those habits of attaching or fearing distort what's going on, and it means we're not actually completely open and exposed. We can't be open and exposed and still manipulating the experience. It's one or the other. Either the heart is aware, that simple knowing, presence, or it's manipulating the experience, controlling, denying the experience in some way. That um, you know, that struggle is the opposite of being vulnerable and open. And we don't realize, we don't deepen the insight of peace unless we deepen the exposure. So liberation, the freedom the Buddha talks about, is the direct result of opening to what the heart has yet to open to, exposing the mind and heart to what it doesn't want to open, be exposed to. So if you want to take the next step in your spiritual life, you have to awaken to what your heart or mind is unconsciously not open to. And it's like, you know, it feels sometimes like the heart, mind, body is cracking open. It feels like, my God, this can't be the way, because it feels I feel more vulnerable more on the edge, but that's actually a good sign because to open to what's next, we have to break out of the limited life we're living. We have to go beyond our limited strategies. And the way we do that is noticing what's really going on, what's really predominant, what the heart, mind isn't yet fully exposed, open to seeing clearly, and then go there. So mindfulness can't be, this path can't be passive. Well, I'm just, I'm present. There's a very uh, active part of wisdom that's really looking for what the mind isn't seeing, what the mind is sort of covering up. Like that great archetypal 
seen in the Wizard of Oz. You know, we all remember it. I mean, a lot of us grew up seeing it every year where, you know, Dorothy notices the guy behind the curtain, you know, and then he says over the loudspeaker, pay no attention to the guy behind the curtain. And that's kind of what's going on for us. It's like somehow our mind is telling us, don't look there. And that's where we need to look, you know. There's nothing there. Well, let's see if there's nothing there. If there's really nothing there, what would it hurt to relax, to be interested, to be less defended, more exposed? So I'll leave it here so we have more time tonight to hear from people. We'll probably talk about equanimity one more week and then uh, in September go on to a different topic. But uh, so we have about 20 minutes tonight. It'd be nice to hear what you've been learning in your practice around equanimity or any questions you have about the talk tonight. And don't be shy about sharing you know, places where you really see a lot of reactivity, places where you've learned to have less and less reactivity, more and more exposure, and, and any sense of peace in that exposure, as opposed to like your life is going down the toilet because you're more exposed, but actually feeling more freedom, more being more alive, in that exposure. That would be great to hear. Yeah, Nick. Uh, in the occurrence of always popular book, he talks about uh, the spiritual experience that he had, and the overriding thing that he remembered about it was this voice telling him to be this nothing. I think that's kind of what he's talking about tonight. Well, when I'm in the middle of a book long example, what am I resisting? How would you interpret that to that Yeah. Did everybody hear what Nick said? So when he's in, in the midst of a flow, full-blown um, resentment, a lot of anger, resentment in his mind, you know, w what is the mind resisting? Is that what you asked? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. You know, so let's all just... You know, this should be pretty easy for us. <laughs> How long has it been since your mind has been in full-blown resentment? And if you're one of those more perfect ones in the room, you know, a mild resentment. You know. And then what is the, like, another way to rephrase uh, Nick's comment is, like, what is the mind not seeing, not willing to be exposed to? be willing to be sensitive to? What is it afraid of being sensitive to, opening to? And so let's just, before I say my opinion, you know, just think about what comes to your mind. You know, so you're in that resentment. What is it the mind or heart is, does not want to open to, does not want to let in? What reality, present moment reality in that, in that moment heart does not want to see, does not want to let in. Because when we see somebody acting in a way that is wrong, right? I mean, that's what resentment is. We have a very strong sense that what this person did was wrong. It shouldn't be this way. This person shouldn't be acting this way. This is not the world as it should be. I should not have to live in this kind of world. Right? So now that should be a little clearer. Like, what do we need to be willing to be exposed to, sensitive to? Can we actually relax into the world 
where people are like this, where people get angry, where people do stupid things, where people act out their greed and aversion and delusion, and we're vulnerable to it. You know, are we willing to be in this soup that we actually are already in? You know, in this world. Yeah, you know, when and I uh, taking a walk by um, the Stone Arch Bridge last night. You know, and it was kind of a dark little place there, a park on the east side. Some of you probably know of it. And uh, we were both sort of wondering if we should walk through it. It was, I don't know when it was, 9.30 or so. And uh, anyway, so we started walking through it. And there were some people who had been drinking and kind of trying to harass us. I mean, it probably wasn't dangerous, but it was a little disturbing. And, uh, you know, just so just that, you know, that... Uh, exposure, you know, can we, this nice, pleasant city that we like to imagine we live in, can we realize that, you know, there's a certain exposure being in the city? It's like the other week, not that long ago, our friend's car, you know, we stay, a friend was staying with us in his car. He has a convertible and his soft top, someone just sliced out an eight-inch square in order to unlock the door and see if he had anything to steal inside. And, the other day, someone broke into Wynn's Prius, see, or maybe she had left it unlocked, we're not sure, but, you know, kind of threw everything around to see if there's anything to steal. You know, and this is this neighborhood, which we often think of as being a really safe, you know, it mostly is. It's a very safe place for the most part. But just kind of opening up, you know, I notice how my heart wants to close down. Basically, with some attitude, it shouldn't be this way. But it is this way. You know, so can, like uh, Joko Beck has this image of the icy couch for the present moment. Can we relax on this icy couch? That is our life. Basically relax with what we don't want to relax to. So the heat of that resentment. So first, before you even go to this, what this person did, the first thing you have to relax with is your mind being disturbed by what this person did. You know, like, can you relax with this hot anger that's alive in your mind? Can you accept that, the heat of that? Are you willing to actually feel what it feels like to be resentful? Because we have to get close to that resentment before anything will change. The thing that prevents change, positive change, like the transformation of the personality and the deepening of insight into peace, is the unwillingness to see suffering. The Buddha was very clear about this. It is the not seeing suffering that is the cause for suffering, would perpetuate suffering. So in this case, the first step is just to feel the resentment. When you make peace with your own heat of anger, then you, then you have the possibility of making peace in a, with the world where people can be doing things that trigger your anger. But first you've got to practice being intimate with your own anger. Then you can deal with what triggered it. So not resisting uh, being in a world that wants change? Yeah. Yeah, including Nick can get angry. You know, so, so, because normally we think, well, I'm a spiritual being, I shouldn't be getting angry. So it might feel like it's appropriate to judge the fact that we're angry. But no, it's just the perfect thing to practice with. Well, can I let this in? Being angry is like this. Can I be intimate with this? 
Can I really feel, you know, in this case, it's going to be unpleasant. Can I feel, can I, is my heart willing to be exposed to the destructiveness of this resentment? And then, and then when we sort of start relaxing with that, we'll start noticing the underlying fear. But I don't want to live in a world where people do this to me. Well, can that be okay? Do I really need to deny or resist, distract myself from the fact that people do do things that are hurtful? That I will, this heart will be hurt. Can that be okay? Am I willing to be harassed from time to time? To have my cars broken into from time to time? To have my body get sick from time to time? To lose people, lose things that I care about from time to time? Are we willing to be okay with that? If not, we're going to suffer. You know, I mean, it's just—it's really that simple. Thanks, Nick, for bringing that up. Yeah, Tom. Um, first thing you talked about, one thing you opened was sort of like this feeling that like when things are good, you kind of want to like, boy, uh, I really like to keep that or stock up on that, or, you know, just somehow keep that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was reminded of other times, other talks where. I was thinking about how mindfulness, this, this practice, is, is so much the complete opposite of other large parts of my life, which were uh, depression and addiction. And I mean, those are just like, the, I mean, depression is all about, you know, telling a story, just really, really going with it. And, you know, addiction is all about, you know, when's a good time to get high? But any time, bad times, good times, you know, any time, you, you just never really want to, in both those states, you never want to be, I never wanted to be where I was. Yeah. I never want to be who I was. But, that, you know, I want to be, you know, to I mean, that's, that's, I'm very grateful that that's in the past, you know, for now. Um, and then you, equanimity, something you said a few weeks ago, too, was, Somehow to, to re, kind of look at your past, it doesn't have to just stay that way. And I, I just, I've been thinking a lot about that. That you talk about equanimity now. That you know, can I be okay with this moment as it is now? You know, and I can't remember how you put it, but can I sort of like I took it away as, as can I be okay now with the way it was then? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And so like, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad it's. I've moved on, and, you know, uh, my life is good now. I, I'm a kid, and I say, you know, I'm living the dream. I drive a minivan and work in an insurance company. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm kind of not kidding because, you know, it's, it, it's, I'm, I'm more, I think I'm, it's more little pockets of equanimity. Like, this is really okay. And what you said that time before with uh, looking back and just, just sort of saying, yeah, well, 25 years I was a total idiot, or 25 years I was a master. That was all just, just sort of like take take a chunk of your life and just go, all right, that's in the this box that says that. Word. Yeah. So now I find myself sort of like, I don't know, I'm just kind of revisiting those moments and being able to be kind of, I can't go back and be, you know, quantumist at that point, but I can be a quantumist now with it. Just sort of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I can be, I, I don't know the choice. I try to be with, so just kind of like having these parts of my life that are just sort of, don't add up. Now, sort of like, no. I guess I have parts of my life that don't add up. And they're 
Yeah. I think that it's a really important thing to say because I think it's uh, probably an essential part of healing and toward I think toward the last stages of it because uh, having the idea like any sort of sense of danger or uh, the past or something I said or did in the past is unacceptable that kind of rejection is a real weight in the present moment. So we need to heal the past, not by going back to the past, but it's basically we're healing our understanding in the present moment of the past. Telling ourselves a story that's in alignment with our current insight, our deeper insight, which is, first of all, the past is over. So any sort of charge about it doesn't make sense. And also, our, our, our understanding that it couldn't have been other than what it was. Given all those causes and conditions, that's how it was. And to really make peace with that is to sort of uproot inappropriate fear. You know, we don't, like, if we did something really stupid in the past, it might, on, on some kind of, I guess, ignorant way, we might think we deserve to drag a, a ball and chain around. You know, because we were bad, like, you know, that movie, The Mission, where, you know, he was carrying the, if you don't know this, it's a great film in some ways, but somebody led a, led a bad life and took place back in um, South America during, I don't know, maybe 150 years ago, 100 years ago. But anyway, he felt really guilty and wanted to purify himself of his bad actions, so he dragged her on a cross for a while, including up a waterfall. But it's sort of, it was very beautiful just in, in a cathartic way of sort of, of at some point, you know, he just, he fell, in the, or the cross fell, I forget exactly. But just that kind of release from that idea that I've got to carry the weight of my mistakes, that's a real egotistic point of view. That somehow I was bad. It's such a separate way of thinking about things instead of a process way of thinking about things. That that happened and that, you know, naturally, lawfully, due to causes and conditions. And that doesn't mean we don't learn from the past, but we're really letting go of the psychic weight of that person. Because now it's now. And so that healing, like having equanimity with any story that mind could possibly say about the past is really useful. And this is almost like you know, when you're sitting and the mind gets really quiet, one of the phases in practice will be the mind basically will burp up little stories from the past, little memories, to see if it can disturb the mind. You know, all those embarrassing things, all those intoxicating things, you know, all those intense events from the past would just arise in the mind. And, and either the mind was going to kind of want to shake it off, like, oh, no, I don't want to think about that now or he will grab it or will judge it. But the question is, can every memory, whatever memory, can it arise in the space of the present moment without creating any disturbance? Allow it to rise and allow it to go. Then we know we feel the past. And then the same thing about the future. No matter what the mind says about the future, you know that the future hasn't happened yet. And that's just a thought. And so you could have a really exciting thought about what's going to happen tomorrow or a really scary thought about what's going to happen about tomorrow. 
but the mind remains undisturbed, equanimous. It's just thoughts about the future, which doesn't exist now. Now exists. The future doesn't exist. It's unknown. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. Scott. You know, when you talk about uh, opening up the mind to the subconscious, the mind is not open, is, is that kind of, in a way, saying opening it up to what we're, we have fears about, what we're afraid of? Is it kind of about fear? I, I, I see so much of that in, you know, in life in general, that the way people react about resentment or whatever. It, is it a fear? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, subconscious isn't a word that's used in, in Buddhist practice so much. You know, there are tendencies, the sankharas, the mental formations are part of the, the movement of the mind or the activity of the mind are these sort of tendencies. It's like, uh, you know, a river has a, an inclination to flow this and that way because of the ruts and the grooves and the in the landscape. And it's the same thing with our mind. So maybe that is a, the Buddhist equivalent of the, what we in the West call the subconscious. But, uh, but one of the sort of, um, sort of forces of that terrain are these basic notions arising out of self-centeredness, like fear and greed. You know? So these are the primal forces of our conditioned mind. You know, Buddha calls them aversion or fear, greed, you know, and delusion, not seeing things clearly. These are the primal forces of our conditioned mind. They create the terrain. And so the key for our practice, though, and this is, I think, what your comment suggests, is don't worry so much about the content. We're really looking at the t terrain. So the terrain the grooves of our mind, the patterns of our mind, they, they sort of allow for specific thoughts or specific emotions to arise. But what we're really interested in getting to in our practice is what are these underlying forces that are sort of doing the work, sort of putting together the projections that keep kind of arising, the content that arises. Because the content is really confusing. We want to go more to the underlying fear, like you suggested, or greed, neediness. And this is what I meant earlier about these more subtle forces. Like, like we might have a thought about what's going to happen tomorrow. Let's say it's scary. You know, we have a big meeting and we need to impress people. And, and it's so easy to get intoxicated with the content. Well, what should I say to that person? Or how am I going to handle this? But, but what's more pervasive and more subtle, but much more predominant, what really is asking for attention is the fact that the heart is afraid. It's afraid. Or the heart really wants to be seen, really wants security or whatever. You know? Can we actually feel that wanting or feel that fear? Can we get close to it? Can we let it in? Can we be exposed? Can we rest with it? Are we willing to be undefended with it? But the content, if we stay at the level of the content, we'll never do that deeper work. So often in meditation instructions, we talk about going from the content right to the feeling tone, right to the ouch or the contraction that's really, in a sense, the motivating force for that content. 
and not to spend too much time on the content, but really use the content as a as a doorway into more what's more subtle and more predominant, more important in terms of practice. Any last thoughts, or should we just let it go here? Hmm? Oh, Nicole. Well, I work with this one a lot, and I think I'm very good at it. So when I'm able to really feel as you like saying yes, one, yes, one, then it feels very nice, I mean, very decent. But then right away, there's that vulnerability. You know, like, it feels really scary. And so then it's nice thing. Maybe that's too deep of a level. That's a, it's really important that you said that because we have to respect where we are. And it's and this is the, and what you said is exactly right. Even in something relatively small, we're sitting and we have some ordinary pain in the body. And uh, and we practice full exposure to the pain in the body. And you know, and we get some like you mentioned, Nicole, you get some peace. You like the insight arises where well, oh it's actually it's actually sane and safe to open to pain and then what the mind does because that's a true insight the mind starts to generalize it okay if you can be if being open and undefended with that difficult experience in life is safe how about this and then like you said the mind kind of gets can get frightened because where's the end of that total exposure and this is so one insight naturally draws you and that's that's exactly how it should work and when it feels overwhelming the only thing I would change from what you said or add to what you said is maybe uh, act or uh, actively act out the voice of wisdom in that moment so you're seeing it already but say it out loud in your mind like honey uh, I know I have to go there you know, I know I have to go to that total exposure where right now it's really frightening, like going down the rapids without a paddle. But but not now. You know, not now. So I'm going to do this with my mind. You know, but but I'm not a. But I know I'm coming back here. So you want to like in your mind acknowledge that you get to pick the time and place when you let go, when you test those waters, you know, is it really safe? But you don't have, no one has to, no one's going to force you. And it's not really appropriate. I mean, life might force you, particular conditions, you know, like all of a sudden we're in a car accident and we're totally not in control and, uh, you know, anything could happen or whatever. And then we just do the best we can. But when we can, when we have the capacity 
to divert the attention. That's always a, we're going to do it anyway sometimes when we're feeling overwhelmed. So why not do it consciously and understand the lawfulness of it? Like it's seeming to be too big, too much, too fast. So why not just acknowledge it seems too big, too much, too fast? But honey, this is always here, waiting. But right now I'm going to bring my attention and put it over here. Yeah. So, because the idea is that what really allows us to do this full exposure, like to ordinary pain and sitting practice, is that we feel relatively safe. When we feel relatively safe, we're willing to take risks. When we feel relatively unsafe, we don't want to take risks. So the key is like, what can we do in our lives as a practitioner to create more safety so we can take more risks? How can each of us in our own particular conditions find more safety, more ease? Because then we'll do more risky things like that more full exposure. In the Buddhist tradition, especially at the time in the early tradition, you know, the monks and nuns spent a lot of time developing deep states of samadhi, of calm, where the, they're experiencing deep states of love and quietude and this sort of inner unification, like a mystical experience of peace. And that gave them a real sense of calm and security than to look at you know, the full exposure to uncertainty, to impermanence in life. So it was always balanced with living a very wholesome life and having really powerful, wholesome states of mind to create a sense of security. But we just do the best we can. We do some of that, of course, with the time that we have to cultivate those deeper states of, of bliss, um, inner calm. And also, we develop wholesome relationships. And, and just uh, seeing what's beautiful in the world also can create that sense of safety, appreciating the beauty, being grateful for the good things. This all helps create a sense of uh, safety in our lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.